Consummate Athlete seeks health, community, and adventure through movement. And here on the podcast, longtime endurance coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford and author and cycling coach Molly Herford are helping you lead your best active, adventurous life. Every week, we talk with professional athletes, health and fitness experts, and of course, real-life consummate athletes. We're excited to have you along for the ride. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Just Molly here today, and I'm super excited to kick off another week. And today's guest is really, I honestly had the most fun chatting with him. Uh, we're talking to Mark Gallagher, a podiatrist from the UK. And oh my gosh, when I asked out on Instagram if anyone had any foot questions as athletes, the response rate was uh, pretty impressive. So uh, it was very obvious that pretty much everyone from beginner athletes to veterans of cycling, running, whatever sport they're in, uh, have some foot issues ranging from, you know, these deep bones, you know, stress fracture type things to, you know, the more mundane, weird blisters in places. Uh, a lot of questions around bunions. And to be honest, we had so many that we're going to have to get Mark back on to do a follow-up episode because there was just so much that we covered in this episode that I we couldn't fit all of the questions in so look for round two um, but in this one we we really kind of dive into a lot of different topics and my favorite thing about this talk is that mark you know we talk about especially stress fractures and instead of just talking about like oh put your foot in a boot go get x-rays done we sort of talk about what underlying causes might be there um, so he really, you know, he focuses on the foot, obviously, being a podiatrist, but he doesn't just focus on it. He's going to back up and say, like, what's going on otherwise in the body? Um, and the same is true for, you know, our run stride and our pedal stroke and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's a super interesting episode. I definitely learned a lot. It changed even the way I was thinking about lacing up my shoes, which is something that I had not spent a lot of time thinking about. Uh, despite being someone who has plenty of blister issues. So it is something that I'm taking with me as I, you know, go longer and longer on my runs. Now I'm thinking much more about how carefully I have to lace up my shoes and how that makes a huge difference and how they fit. Um, and for those of you who've mentioned that you have particularly wide feet and you're having trouble with cycling shoes, um, I'm in the same boat. I have a very wide um, toe box and I love Shimano's mountain bike shoes for that tons of extra space really great so total little plug for them i'll include a link to them in the show notes because i know it's something a lot of runners deal with especially anyone who tries to wear minimal shoes which is something that i do um, i noticed my feet actually started getting wider around my toes as i was able to maneuver my toes more thanks to toe yoga which is an episode for another day um, but it, it made a big difference finding a pair of cycling shoes that actually let my feet feel comfortable and feel like I could wiggle my toes around and everything. So yeah, just, uh, just wanted to throw that out there. Um, and if you have any other foot-related questions, please hit us up um, over on t Twitter, Instagram, uh, or just consummateathlete.com. Let us know what else you're thinking about and let us know if you enjoyed this episode so we can give Mark another reason to come back on and do another Q&A session. So enjoy this conversation with Mark Gallagher. I'd love it if you could just kind of just begin by kind of giving us a bit of a, a bio and how you got interested in the field of, of sports medicine and how it relates to podiatry. Yeah, I mean, Mark, you know, I'd love to tell you it was a very clear career pathway. <laughs> you know, it was none of that. I, you know, in, in the UK sort of did my A-levels because it felt the right thing to do. I, uh, I applied for the Royal Air Force and got accepted. Um... And then two months away from basic training, uh, I got offered something slightly different in the Air Force, and I, I didn't really want to do that. I had sort of my mindset on something else, and then decided to go to university and, you know, this thing called podiatry that I've never really heard of. And it, it looked attractive mainly because of the, you know, the musculoskeletal biomechanical elements of it, which, which naively you don't touch on for at least two and a half years of a course. <laughs> um, but when, you know, I managed to maintain an interest until that point and, and and i have to say you know from a career perspective it's always been right place right time working with some really good people so when i my first started my my work um it was in the national health service and i was working in a trauma hospital in in the west midlands which became a military trauma unit so both civilian and military trauma which is quite quite unique at the time 
um, and a blank canvas. You know, at the time of qualifying, there wasn't much governance, so we could essentially do what we wanted to do with with not a lot of restrictions, as long as it seemed to be the right thing and it wasn't doing patients any harm. It, you know, we we got we got the sort of the support to, to develop a service, and so therefore, yeah, um, getting involved with sports medicine was a natural evolution when you're working with mechanical problems and it's particularly foot and ankle it's a niche market so you tend to work with you know specific teams and and for me you know i i work in a dedicated uh, sports injuries unit in london for part of my week and i work in two private hospitals in the west midlands um so the center of england if you like uh the rest of the time plus i'm linked into a professional football club and that's both male and female players um So yeah, it's it's a nice mix. So if I was to say and, and said I had a very career, set career pathway, it was none of that. It was right place, right time. I love it. That's <laughs> that's awesome. And now, what what about you as far as sport goes? I mean, I know I've seen some of your writing, and you know we've talked about runners over the last few years that I've, like I said, been bothering you with foot related questions for articles. Um, but it, do you have any particular areas of interest when it comes to like? Sport specific sports and slash are, are you doing any of these sports yeah i mean my my background is is, is football predominantly so I, I i managed to keep playing up until i was 42 i'm 47 now and i had to give up really because of a back injury um so all of my fitness around football was 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 really focused on trying to be as fit as possible to play you know a reasonable level um i always ran and i always cycled and as you get older you, just, you start needing to make decisions. Um, you know, if I look at triathletes, I find them an interesting group because they manage their injury risk because they're doing three disciplines, two of which are non-impact. Mm-hmm. But they're always they're always running on empty. Um, and and for me as a as a runner and a cyclist for my fitness, I had to decide really what next because if I ran two to three times a week, I'd be tied for the bike. And if I was you know, biking on a regular basis. I'd be using different muscle groups for my runs. And if I'm honest, I fell out with run, uh, love with running a couple of years back, and I've I still play with it a little bit more for bone health issues, which we'll probably touch on when we talk about sort of female stress bone injury. But um, yeah. yeah, for me, I'm just a cyclist. I spend all my time on a bike, which has its uh, good bits and and a few bad bits. Yeah. Um, it's actually funny as as I was kind of prepping for this, I had a last minute question come in about uh, bikes and and feet. So, I, since since you're talking about bikes, I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna ask it. Um, this person was wondering uh, feet going numb. You know, say 45 to 60 minutes into riding, um, I'm sure you've you've heard about this before, or dealt with this before, because it's a super common issue that I, I hear people mention all the time. If someone said that to you, what would some of the the first thoughts be that you would have on that? Sorry to like throw a random one yeah. at you, but <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's. I mean, the answer is welcome to my world. It's something that as a as a cyclist and a regular cyclist, you know, you, you're going to experience and and. There are, don't get me wrong, there are factors linked to it. I mean, I actually did a blog. If you do get bored and Google Mark Gallagher foot problems in cycling, you'll probably come up, up with it, and it's, it's from quite a while ago. I'll make sure I link um, to that for sure. Yeah, and it's, I mean, the bottom line is, you know, you're, you're in a fairly attritional environment where you've got a carbon fiber sole unit, so the force that you put down onto the pedal isn't going to be transmitted anywhere apart from into your tissues. Invariably, the shoe fit of a bike or a, a, a cycling shoe is a little bit narrower. I mean, there there are good models and brands out there if you have a wide foot. So therefore, you've got to start looking at the shape of your foot versus the type of um, shoe you're going to buy. Um, so you know, googling extra wide cycle shoes is a starting point. Mm-hmm. And then we then we've got the the physiological aspect, which is when we exercise, muscles swell. So you know, the volume of the foot changes. So you put those things together, which is you know, particularly you're cycling beyond that 60-minute point, you've already got a foot which is swelling physiologically. It's in a tight environment, and you're putting constant compressive force into the into the foot tissues. And it's your recipe for, you know, for irritation in tissues. The one thing to exclude is there is a condition called Morton's neuroma, or, or neuroma, and it's basically a thickened nerve fiber which gets... The, the long metatarsals, you, you, you're easily compressing nerve fibers that run through them. So... It's just one thing to be aware of. If you start to have symptoms off the bike, 
as in sort of pins and needles, tingling, numbness and things like that, then you need to be suspicious that there might be a, a nerve fibre thickening there, which uh, okay. takes you down a slightly different path. But it's a very, very common problem to see. Yeah, and I think maybe that's actually kind of an interesting thing to note is that at some point, like, we're doing sort of unnatural things to our feet, especially when we're jamming them in, you know, bike shoes or when we're running, you know, 26 miles on pavement all at once. Um, so a little bit of discomfort is, is sort of just going to be par for the course like every if we just stopped running or riding at every little thing like that we, we would never do any of them exactly yeah exactly um so um and maybe this is going to be different for men and women but what would you say in in terms of runners because i think more runners are dealing with foot issues than cyclists probably because like you say the the bone or the impacts um what would the most common foot injuries that you see in runners be and is that different for men and women um really i mean i i I think about the foot in in terms of three segments so you've got the heel or rear foot the midfoot and the forefoot so it sort of goes back a little bit to um you know where where do you land on your foot dictates in part, what tissues will be stressed. So if you're a classic endurance athlete and you're a little bit more heel to midfoot dominant, you're going to generate a higher impact force around the heel, so more deceleration type moments. So you'd get things like sort of bone stress um, in the heel. You would get sort of fat pad irritation. The fat pad is a structure that sits underneath the heel, and it's as described, it's a collection of fat cells that are there for shock absorbency. which is why cushioning in footwear is important to a point. You can have too much or not enough. Um, so if you go minimalist with your footwear choice and your rear to midfoot striking, then you're going to put more stress into the fat pad. Um, Achilles tendons, uh, so obviously that's more in that rear foot. Um, and as you move through into the middle part of the foot, there's a really important tendon from a, a foot position perspective called tibialis posterior. It's a it's a big player in terms of controlling sort of that contact phase eversion. So this this pronation that is spoken about as a you know a dreaded movement, which is actually a normal movement. The problem is that sometimes people do too much of it too quickly. When you've got that foot profile which is rolling in a little bit more, mm-hmm. then tibialis posterior that tendon has got to do a lot of work, a lot of restraining work basically to control that rotational movement. So that's quite a common uh, tendon to see involved. You'll have a, a group of um, patients that will get plantar fasciitis, which again is a fairly common uh, condition. Um, and then you move into the forefoot, and the forefoot is a combination of things. And there's two little bones at the front of the foot, underneath the big toe joint, called sesamoids. Really interesting structures. Um, and actually, when you look at the male female split of what you see with injury, we tend to see sesamoid problems more in females than males. Okay. So that's an interesting one to look at. And generally in the forefoot, it's, it's sort of more bone stress response or, you know, stress response, stress fracture, that type of pattern. And then just one or two quirky little soft tissue problems. So you get what's called a plantar plate tear or disruption. Um, and, and if you think about it logically, why wouldn't you? You know, multiple impacts over, you know, different levels of time. You know, if you were to think about the footsteps and the load that you're putting through the forefoot, it goes back to your earlier comment. You know, there's a mechanical consequence to what we do. Yeah. Um, but actually, there's not that many things that can go wrong with the foot. You know, diagnostically, <laughs> it's not a problem. But, but in reality, you know, you've got these these little subsets. And um, so, yeah, unless there's, I mean, you do get an, an anomaly from time to time. But but really, there's, there's some fa- fairly specific things that we would see in clinic on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, yeah. And so coming back to why more women would maybe have that, uh, and I'm going to butcher it, seismoid um, (laughs) issue. Do you have any any thoughts on why that is more prevalent for women? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we talk about the risk factors for female, there are two obvious ones which spring to mind. So the bigger picture one is... um, I guess for want of a better term, bum strength. So we talk about the gluteal Ah. funk. You know, and it's really about if if you look at female runners, if you look at female footballers, invariably they generate a higher what's called Q angle. So that's just looking at the hip to knee angle, and it's look at what it's looking at the angle when they're sort of doing their single leg squat or when they're doing sort of step down tests. Mm-hmm. So essentially, most females 
will generate more internal rotation in and around their knee and lower leg than males. It's just you're slightly set up differently structurally. Okay, so and that's, that's that like jumping with your knees landing slightly inward kind exactly of situation. That. Yeah. So that, so that generates more torque load into tissue. So whether that's the hip, the knee, or the ankle, there's going to be a potential cost. But, but probably more importantly is bone health. Is as, a, as a female, you're more likely to have hormonal reasons why your bone health is maybe not as robust as a male. Sure. And that is something which we see far too often in clinic and it's an area which still has a, a big way to go in terms of trying to partly educate and partly intervene. Because ultimately, you're talking about maybe vitamin D for bone health. Well, you know, here in the UK, you get lots of people saying, well, you know, it's summer now and, and surely I'll get vitamin D exposure. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's not as simple as that. Most of the, the screening stuff we do in our elite sport environment, most of our athletes are in the suboptimal range for vitamin D level. Mm-hmm. So these are young healthy athletes generally outside that are in the suboptimal range so for for a civilian who's maybe office based or whatever else then it's highly likely that their vitamin d levels are also suboptimal so we you know i guess our discussion today is about structural risk factors and length and strength but you know let's not overlook the intrinsic factors let's let's never ignore bone health because if your bone isn't strong enough to deal with those multiple impacts then you've got a potential risk factor there that you can easily address, but is often overlooked. Oh, that is such a good point. Yeah, because I mean, if it comes down to, you know, getting that vitamin D or getting all of that stuff checked versus having to wear like a boot on your foot for six months, I think most of us would probably rather uh, rather be taking the vitamin D and maybe, maybe you know, making sure our hormones and all of that stuff is, is sorted out. Molly, it's the biggest thing that, when, when, you, when you're seeing somebody back on their third, second or third stress fracture mm-hmm. and you're having, the same, you're having the same discussion, you've got to really sit down and work out where you go from there because, you know, particularly for my female group, let's say in the 20s to 40s maybe, that is my group that I often have this conversation with. Um, but it's such a, certainly within the UK, I'm not sure what it's like in the US, but certainly in the UK, you know, we're, we're committed to try and, get that more into sort of mainstream thinking although we've spoken about it for years but it's just yeah it's just one of those things which is 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 overlooked yeah yeah and it's interesting i actually just finished up doing an interview with a, a woman talking about uh red s and you know how that yeah. how that's relating to all of this stuff and sort of that idea of you know once you've had multiple stress fractures your risk for more like there's no amount of like cushioning in shoe that's going to fix that or like the perfect shoe fit that's going to fix that it's probably going to be a much more like whole body fix that's needed absolutely yeah um, so, and that actually, that kind of neatly talked about a bit, a bit about what our feet can tell us about the rest of our body. So, I mean, if you're coming back for your second or third stress fracture in, in a year, it's probably a warning sign that something is, is not right sort of all over. Um, but you kind of mentioned, uh, the heel striking and, and forefoot stri- or midfoot striking. Do you ever find yourself like telling people to change their stride or is it less about changing your stride or optimizing this, that, and the other thing and more just like working with what you have? Where do you fall on that? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, if we take your last comment and, and look at that briefly, you know, when people limp through our door, what we know is how they move is generating force into a certain tissue because that's the injured tissue that you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And then if we if we completely change how they move, we just don't know what the consequence is because there is going to be a consequence. You just you don't just lose force; it's just transferred into another structure. Mm-hmm. So I think I think the only time that we look to to make dedicated change to a running form is in non-responsive cases. So most of the time, what we're doing is a combination of factors like footwear, things inside footwear, length, strength, and control. You know, a lot of strength and conditioning. We, we try and optimize that person, make them more robust to be able to deal with the forces that they generate. That said, if somebody limps through the door or if we get them, you know, we have the gait analysis and we look at their movement patterns and they're just smashing through the treadmill, then we probably, you know, there's a, there's, there's, there's a good argument to try and, and modify 
some of their landing patterns. So ultimately, one of the, the, the easiest and less risky things to change is to increase your cadence because invariably that will do a number of things. What it will certainly do is it will reduce the overstride risk because if you're taking more steps per minute, it's you're unlikely to have to extend your your landing leg out in front of you to try and cover distance more. So increasing cadence for me is essentially a bit of a no-brainer if I'm dealing with somebody whose who's symptoms are related to bone impact forces. Okay. Now, how does one actually speed up their cadence? I know how to do that on a bike, but on a run without like going to a sprint, I genuinely would have no idea how to make myself do that. Yeah, no, it's a quirky one. Uh, so there's different ways of doing it. You know, people talk about metronomes, people talk about downloading songs that are at 175 beats a minute or whatever you're going to change your cadence to. So there's different strategies and actually no one size fits all. So if you're serious about looking at change, get yourself on YouTube. You'll probably see four or five fairly simple things because it's either verbal cues or visual cues. And that's the issue because what works for one is it might not work for you. Mm-hmm. But, but but in terms of, you know, it's, it's increasing your step rate. So whichever way you look at it, you know, you're talking about a moderate difference in how many times your foot contacts the floor. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's quirky little tools out there. Um, and it's definitely worthwhile looking at if, again, your symptoms are related to impact forces. So that could be shin pain, that could be knee symptoms, that could be rear foot stress fractures, because this is the interesting thing. Because most of our endurance athletes land essentially around that heel, maybe midfoot. You know, the best of both worlds is to land midfoot. Mm-hmm. Because if you, then, if you then take it to an extreme and try and land on the front part of your foot, well, that's going to keep me in business because <laughs> the, the forefoot's not designed to take that amount of impact load. So what you'll do is you'll trade off your risk of, let's say, a shin pain or knee pain, and you're massively going to increase your risk of a stress fracture in your metatarsal and or increase your risk of Achilles tendon problems. So I guess one of my concerns for people reading literature about let's say four foot landing or you know the the pause method of running or whatever whatever method somebody's looking at to make change is unfortunately people don't do the preparation work required to make that change so a story briefly is working for the military ministry fence where most of our excuse me the commonest thing in our soldiers was shin pain at this time there was a paper by a guy called daniel lieberman who's a harvard professor back in 2010 he, he published an article in the Journal of Nature which got completely taken out of context. And even Lieberman says that as well. He was looking at a group of Kenyan athletes, actually Kenyan youngsters. And it wasn't about um, where they wearing shoes and not wearing shoes. It was about where they land in terms of their foot strike angle. And unfortunately, a lot of sort of commercial footwear companies was, you know, this is about wearing shoes or not wearing shoes. And so we just saw a massive transition from... Um, people just choosing foot which is completely inappropriate or making a change to be more forward-running. So I, for, for me personally, I went through a six-week period of time, and at the time I was running two 10Ks a week of a reasonable speed, um, so in and around sort of 40, 42 minutes there or thereabouts, and then tried to see how it would feel for me to modify my uh, foot strike angle because I was presenting the data to some of our regional group in terms of injury risk and how can we modify that for our military group and for me my calves and my achilles tendons were screaming for that six weeks <laughs> you know so for somebody who ran he was fairly robust you know played football on a regular basis and, and 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 ran on a regular basis i just couldn't make that transition now actually filling in the gaps i should have gone a, should have gone away and done a dedicated strength conditioning program to make sure my my gastroc and my cilius so the two calf muscle groups were able to sustain that change in running form. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying it's, it's, it's impossible to do it. What I'm saying is if you're going to do it, you need to work out why you're doing it. So again, is it about improving time or is it about modifying injury risk? Yeah. Because if, you know, and, and there, you know, the question is what's your objective with, with your running? Is it, you know, if, if you've got recurrent injuries, then I think you need to look at those key metrics like, Again, landing angles, stride length, cadence, things like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's an interesting area. Yeah. And so you mentioned, you mentioned foot strengthening and you mentioned the 
uh, these bare, barefoot situation. Um, I, I know like the bare, I feel like the barefoot shoe movement is sort of a little over now, so I won't really touch on that, but the, the idea of just being, um, foot strengthening and how runners can do that sort of outside of the run. Um, you know, I, I always kind of advocate for like not wearing shoes when possible. Like I'll, I'll be barefoot, you know, when I'm not running basically. Um, yeah any thoughts on that and or like any other foot strengthening stuff that most runners should be doing to keep their feet more supple or does that even matter? No, absolutely. It does. The the whole essence of my work within sort of the sports medicine field is, you know, my job is about either minimizing injury risk. um, And that's usually by external methods. So that's footwear choice and things inside footwear. But obviously we look at whether we can internally make somebody more robust so the, the key muscle groups from a from a foot and ankle perspective is your calf muscle group, is your engine room. You know, you've got six to eight times body weight going through soleus, which is mm-hmm. the smaller muscle group in your calf. That's a phenomenal amount of force. So therefore, I'm, I'm, I'm heavily biased towards calf loading programs. Um, in fact, I, I stumbled across a really useful website, which is a U.S. website, actually. It's an American, I think it's a PT, um, but just a really lovely program of four exercises that, you know, three of which don't need gym gym um, access, heavily soleus based, which is a progressive loading program. And most of my runners, I'm sending that link to so they can go away and work on, on that strength. Because when they're injured, if, if, if we can do calf work without aggravating their injury, then we need to do that calf work. Because if they just take time away, decondition over six to eight weeks, and then go and try and run again, the only guarantee I can give them is that they're going to have problems. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting you mentioned the calf and that kind of made me just think as far as like female running injuries could we also maybe kind of postulate that maybe there's more female running injuries because when we're not in running shoes a lot of the time us us women tend to cram our feet into high heels or even not high heels like my my mom is a is a teacher and she has all these foot issues and she wears you know ballet flats with zero anything on concrete floors all day every day well, if I said to, if I said to, well, let's 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 be heavily biased here and exaggerate slightly. If I said to my male running group, who were running, let's say, four times a week, what I want you to do now is a recovery strategy. Is I want you to sellotape some cardboard to your feet and walk around for the next eight to ten hours on it. That's your recovery strategy. In ballet flats, that's what you're doing. Yes. You know. So in in, in elite in elite sport environments, so whether it's the football group or, or the netball group, we talk a lot about recovery strategies, which is, you know, there's there's a mechanical cost to doing your sport. So when you're out of that environment, I want to get you into recovery footwear. So it's going to have you know X, Y, and Z qualities. Um, so I tend to use the sort of the the, the the stiff rocker trainers, so the the Nike Zoom Fly, the Asics Meteoride, the Hocker Carbon X, whatever it is. That is a great recovery footwear for anybody who's got a stress fracture, stress response, forefoot pain. Um, if I want to try and improve the cushioning quality, because there's another factor that I need to consider, I might look at the Adidas Boost range for cushioning. You know, so it's really about choosing. It's choosing the right things after you've done your sport. You know, and if if you've got multiple impacts again for 40 to 60 minutes, or you're doing half marathon, full marathon, you're going to have a lot of bone stress. You know, mm-hmm. and bone stress is just a physiological response to being active it's it's there for everybody and it's one of of the reasons why um recovery days are so important because if you look if you get really geeky and you look at the physiology of what we're saying here there's a continuum so anybody who runs is going to have a bone stress response a bone bruising basically if you don't listen to it you'll get a a, a stress fracture if you don't listen to the stress fracture you'll get a fracture so we can we can play on that spectrum all day but if you're doing multiple days running and or you're having running, but you're not putting yourself in the right environment afterwards, then you've got a potential problem there. So, so going back to your first point about, you know, wood going barefoot, um, I see where you're coming from. In an asymptomatic population, do what you like. In an injured population, I think we need to look at footwear as a intervention strategy. Mm-hmm. And actually, there's, 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 there's minimal evidence. I'm going to be careful how I phrase this. There's minimal <laughs> evidence. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think footwear can be overly engineered. Absolutely, I can. But my, my area of research over the last 15 years is, is EMG, so electromyography. And, and that's really about putting probes onto surface muscles 
to measure what happens to them when we either put them in footwear, do things inside footwear, look at strength and conditioning and balance programs. And, and, and I started that many moons ago because of the netball population I was working with. We were using ankle bracing and there was a concern with the powers that be at the time that that would stop muscles needing to work. The answer is it doesn't. Unless you put somebody in a big stiff boots, you'll still need muscle function to work. Yeah, Admittedly, okay. we will re- we'll regulate the activity. So if you've got something which is too engineered, you could have a maybe a bit of a discussion about it. But most footwear is not going to belt and brace things. So for me, I would rather think about how are we moderating those impact forces of walking around day to day to make sure that the mechanical cost of what I've generated whilst running is, is allowed to settle down. And I think being barefoot, yeah, if you've had two, two off days from running, I think on, on you know, 48 hours after your last run, if it was 60 minutes plus, I think there's a sound argument to you know, spend a little bit of time barefoot. I think variation is a good thing, by the way, in a fit mm-hmm. and healthy state. Variation is absolutely a great thing. But in an injured state, then you've got to, you've got to manipulate the environment. I mean, I'm biased. You know, I come with a bias there because I make a living from footwear things inside footwear. So you know, take that with caution. No, I, I think that that makes total sense. I mean, essentially, you're talking about using a shoe almost as a like precursor to needing to put your foot in a boot, um, <laughs> it, it sounds like. Footwear plays a part in terms of moderating injury risk, no question. You know, mm-hmm. certainly from the work I've been involved with, I've been involved with two footwear projects historically, looking at the concepts of shoe stiffness. And again, stiffness and cushioning seem to be mutually exclusive they're not you know if you look at what nike have done or what um, asics have done um new balance with their fuel cell tc you know their carbon fiber equivalent of what nike have done they've managed to incorporate fantastic cushioning features with a stiff framework which means that the bending force through the, the front part of your foot is significantly reduced i mean for me that's a game changer i'm not talking about performance here molly i'm talking about the mechanical forces acting on the foot and they're two very different things yeah yeah absolutely um and so before someone before someone is limping into your doorway um the the one thing i really wanted to ask about is um because i see this a lot is when should a runner take a pause from running when they're starting to feel some kind of foot pain is it like the first sign of foot pain they should stop like what are some like red flags where you're like okay please take two days off take that recovery day i mean i guess maybe the first thing is taking a recovery day even before there's any issue is probably a a good spot to begin but i mean my my rule of thumb for most of my runners is you know you've got you'll have an objective for let's say weekly mileage let's say it's 40k a week so my my recommendation is do longer distance per session rather than more sessions per week because ultimately when you're on your feet whether it's 6k or 10k again in a fit and healthy state you've got to recover from multiple impacts Mm -hmm. so having that recovery day within the week is sensible to minimize risk because if you spent a day with me you would recognize very quickly that what we say and we talk about all the time about training error Training error is not necessarily the volume, it's about the consistency. So if you're doing everyday runs or you're running five days out of seven, you've got a physiological challenge on your hands there. So that you show you right, my, my first recommendation is to think seriously about how you structure your running week. That doesn't mean on your off days you can't jump on a bike or you can't swim or do whatever. As long as it's non-impact, you're gonna you're gonna help your risk factor management. Um in terms of the the reaction to a run think about it as a zero to ten score 10's agony zero is no problem i think the physiological burden for most people running is probably two to three out of ten and that that discomfort either the following morning or the following 24 hours for me that's a physiological response that's the bone edema if we just send anybody for scanning you'd see again what we see is bone edema so bone bruising basically because that's what it is but you should be recovered within 12 to 24 hours. And if that's the case, and I think your body's got a fairly effective way of dealing with the stress of running. But if you start doing cumulative days running, then I think you've got a problem. So I think about it in terms of zero to 10. Most activities are not going to be a pain-free experience. But if it's twos and threes, I think that's normal. If it's sevens and eights, I think we need to look at what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
And I mean, we've we've talked now a ton about shoe choice and everything. Um, I'd love to just hear your thoughts on. You wrote this great blog post that I'm going to link to in the in the show notes here. But you wrote about choosing the right marathon running shoe. I'd love to hear you just kind of talk through like what are some of the factors that go into finding that right shoe that's going to work for you. Because I mean, God knows it's sort of like finding the right bicycle saddle. <laughs> I'm seven years in. I'm still trying to find the right bike saddle. It's a lifelong um, process. And the second you find it, by the way, they're going to stop making it. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, certain. So, you know, we, we I guess in, in, in the running world where we're very familiar with concepts of, of, of sort of neutral stability, motion control, I, I'm going to take it a step back. You know what we don't talk about too much is is foot shape or foot dimension. So for somebody like me who's got a slightly broader forefoot, um, you know, width becomes important to me. Um, if you've got somebody who's got a narrow foot, you might find that a shoe range suits them better. So as as a as a brief overview, New Balance Excel width fitting options. That's their USP. Um, ASICs can work well for a group of, of runners. Um, Hocker with a big stack height can work well for a group. So I think it's di- very difficult to generalize, but the first thing is fit. If you found a shoe range that fits, stick with that range. Mm-hmm. If, if you're trying to find the magic trainer, it doesn't exist. Yep. So you put that out there. You know? Darn it. Um, yeah, and, and what works for one might not work for another. So there are... Because this is what I get asked often, which is what's the best training for me? And, and, and that's why I go through the structural screen. So if I see that their foot misbehaves, so if I get them in two feet on the ground and their foot profile looks reasonable, I get them to do a single leg balance and a single leg squat test. There's a bone in the middle of the foot called the navicular. Let's just say it's the, it's the middle of the arch on the inside border. If that keeps dropping down, then it probably suggests that they're more of a stability candidate. If I'm brutally honest, I've yet to find the patient group that need motion control. Probably the only ones are usually the bigger runners. So they've got either a big foot and or they're, they're big, mm-hmm. as in their size is big. Um, but I would say that most people work well with that neutral to stability range. So the other aspect is, you know, a stability shoe just means it's the material on the inside of the heel to maybe the, the inside of the arch is maybe a little bit stiffer. So it just gives a little bit more pushback to a foot which wants to roll in a little bit more. So I think that's really what, how I try and get my my runners thinking. Let's look at the shoe. Let's look at your foot shape first. And when we do that, we can start putting them down a certain pathway to look at maybe three or four options for them. Okay. Um, and then you know what's their stability needs and also the ankle flexibility. You know I mentioned I mentioned in that blog. Uh, you know we do an ankle flexibility test. Uh, called a tibial inclination angle. Uh, people might be familiar with one called knee to wall if they've seen sort of physios or uh, physical therapists in the past. And the bottom line is that there's two ways of looking at ankle flexibility. The stiffer the ankle, the more important the heel drop of the shoe is. And that's just the height difference from front to back. So, you know, when you're looking and, and you're Googling on the specification of trainers, have a look at the heel drop have a look at the fit profile and try them on. I mean, you know, I'm fortunate in London that, you know, Oxford Street is not too far away. So on that Oxford Street, I have Nike, New Balance and Asics. People can go try them on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think so the trying on is super important. How many runs would you give a shoe before you're like, this shoe absolutely doesn't work for me or this shoe like is broken in? Because I know... Like for me, for example, I use the Nike Terra Kigers to run in. And I'll say the first three runs in them were so irritating and bad and uncomfortable. Yeah. But after that, they were they were perfect. And they're now like the shoe that I will rebuy over and over again. But it took a couple of runs to kind of like, I don't know if it was me breaking them in or them breaking me in. <laughs> um, <laughs> but how, how long do you wait before you just say like, nope, I'm going to throw this, this new pair out? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, in intuitively most people get feeling quite quickly i'd probably say you give it you know a half dozen runs maybe before you get to that point um but sometimes you know people in that first you know five to ten k of their first run it's like this is not for me if you've got to break it break a shoe down 
to that extent, I think there's a there's a fit problem or the the the, the profile of the shoe isn't going to be for you. Yeah, I've definitely been goaded into in a running store buying a shoe that wasn't definitely wasn't right for me because on a treadmill for like a minute it worked and the salesperson really pushed it on me. Um, but I think yeah, you, you kind of need to give it a little bit longer than that to to decide. But pretty quickly you you realize not right. <laughs> yeah, and I think if you're an experienced runner, then you sort of know what 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 you're working with. And it goes back to my earlier point: there isn't a magic trainer out there. And of course, try other footwear. You know the the last couple of three years with uh, Nike with their Zoom Fly range, you know, everybody wants to get quicker. I get that, but not everybody's going to suit that trainer or that trainer concept. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a really interesting world because, you know, it's like me as a cyclist. Yeah, of course I want another bike, and you know that's going to be better me. But but ultimately, it doesn't change my intrinsic need to be stronger. For example, um, it doesn't. It's not going to allow me to train necessarily for longer getting a new bike you know i still need to put all those basic fundamental ingredients into my cycling program or for you as a runner into your running program yeah the, the footwear is part of a uh, a combination of factors um so yeah i think from an experienced runner perspective you know the model that you work well with is generally the model that you should stick with there or thereabouts yeah absolutely and so this is kind of like a weird question because I know your your focus is much more on like the the muscles and bones, but things like black toenails or like a blister that always pops up in like the same place would any of that stuff be a sign of of like a more structural issue or is that just I have really weak skin or really obnoxious big toes? <laughs> um, yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean. It is a it is a thing that I I do deal with. I mean, yes, I'm you know you can't ignore this because if it prevents somebody running, you've got to take it seriously. So just to be a little bit geeky again in terms of the blistering. So blistering is a combination of compressive force and shearing force, and it also depends where the blister sits. So let's say you've got a blister um, either heel or across the inside outside of foot. That suggests that there's too much movement backwards and forwards of you inside the trainer, um, because there's no other reason why you generate that. So it's it's it's, it's either the lace-up system is too loose or the shoe is too big. Mm-hmm. Now, big not in terms of length, but in terms of midfoot volume. So because of how the laces work these days with the elasticity, it sounds really patronising when you do it with patients. But I say to them, you haven't tied your trainer enough. You've only pulled the laces at the top two or three eyelets. Mm-hmm. You need to pull from the base up. And the other thing, if you look at a trainer from uh, from uh, top, so your, your eye line looking down at your trainer, if you're having to really pucker the upper, so where the laces sit, really tighten them in, then again, the shoe's too wide for you. Mm-hmm. So often, the group that I see with the biggest blister risk are wearing a shoe which has got too much volume for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the width of the shoe is super, like, I'm glad you mentioned that because yeah, it's so easy to be like, but no, it's, it's my size. It definitely fits forward and backwards, but yeah, yeah width is such an issue. And, 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 and you know, and, and it's sharing, sharing is, is something that we can't measure, but we know exists. Um, and, it, and going back to the toenail side of things, you know, it's just these multiple impacts of the the toes on the toe box so again you are moving backwards and forwards so little things to bear in mind if that's a problem is there's a quirky little thing that you can do called a tongue pad now again i'm conscious of my accent tongue is (laughs) t-o-n-g-u-e and it's a it's a piece of material um that you've come across until called semi-compressed felt it's just a white self-adhesive back material it's about six to eight mil thick and what you do is you cut out a rectangle, which is just about the length of the lace-up system, and you apply it internally in the trainer. So what it does, it just increases the volume of your foot, if you like. And it means you can tie your laces with the same amount of tension, but it'll be just more stable. Oh, okay. Um, I might need to send something on to you about that if it doesn't make sense. But I don't even know if you Google tongue pad, whether it would come up, up with something on YouTube or something similar. But it's one of the ways that I try and make a trainer fit better. If somebody's invested 120 quid in, or $150 in a pair of trainers, uh, you know, the last thing they want to do after three months is bin it. So we just do quirky little things like, you know, put the pads in and it just creates a bit more security around the midfoot. We look at dual layer socks to make sure the shearing force is absorbed in the socks, not the foot. 
So there are ways of trying to minimise that risk. But yeah, recurrent blisters need to be looked at. There's a, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a fundamental issue there, yeah. Okay, then uh, as, asking for a friend, if someone had a blister, say like right between like where their big toe and their uh, foot pad meet, uh, what, what would your thought be on that? Oh, interesting. Um, I mean, yeah, it's a quirky area, um, but it would suggest that, you know, that the, the forefoot shear stress is quite high. I mean, I don't know, you'd have to look at them from an anatomy point of view. If they've got quite a bulbous fat pad underneath the forefoot, that might need to be reduced a little bit in terms of sort of ice packing it after a run because you get some residual swelling in the, in the foot. Um, but I'd, I'd be looking at the same factors we've just mentioned. There's got to be something at play there, which is transferring that amount of shear force into that area of the foot. Mm-hmm. Um, so the could stroke should be a solution for that. You wouldn't have to put up with that indefinitely. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Full, full disclosure, I'm talking about myself, um, but it was it was okay. during a it was during a hike, and I had like a 45, 45 pounds worth of stuff on me. So I think I probably just had a lot more uh, pressure on that area. Were, than were I you were, were you wearing an ankle boot? Were you wearing a? No, I what, was just was wearing. Uh, I was wearing the Nike Terra Tigers. I, I admit I don't really do hiking boots. Okay. Yeah, because if you if you look at that logically, because you carrying forty five pounds is like my infantry guy carrying a you know a, a ten kilo Bergen. It's, mm-hmm. you, you're adding, you're adding compressive force into the equation because you're carrying more weight. So the combination of more compressive force with that shear increases that blister risk. Mm-hmm. I'd still look at the same thing, by the way, but I'd still look at the trainer fit because the other thing is, as you're carrying more weight, if your uh, trainer has got is, is quite squidgy through the forefoot that's going to allow you to shear more or move backwards and forwards more so that i think again everybody's case study one but i think there'd be factors that you could uh, address the next time you do that activity yeah. to try and minimize that risk yeah uh it's so interesting it's like doing detective work and and so it seems like a lot of these things it kind of goes okay well here's here's this problem but now we have to kind of like go out like look much farther out and really think about all of the other factors that go into it because i guess ultimately like the bottom of our feet are you know they might be the first thing to hit the ground but everything up from them is going to impact how they're hitting the ground and what exactly is going on in there I mean, that's what makes clinical practice interesting. And as long as there's a buy-in from, from your patient or your runner to explore these, you know, and, and I think most people don't have this perception anymore that it's just one thing that's going to solve my problem. It's a combination of factors. And most people respond well to the structural screening side of things so they understand more about their intrinsic risk factors. And then it's about what can they do to address them? What what can I do to minimize those risks or get them back running? And, you know, that, that's, you know, a successful outcome is when you and your runner engage in the plan. But if if you don't, you know, if I don't put it across in the right way or the runner doesn't interact with it or, or buy into it, then, you know, you, you're not really going to change too many things. So it's got to be that combination of things. That's why I really enjoy the sports medicine side of it because most people want to be running or reduce their injury risk. They want to know what they can do for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and on that note, I mean, I, I realize you're you're in the UK, but do you ever are you doing any like remote consults or anything like that if someone wants to kind of talk through a problem with you? Yeah, so I mean, you know, lockdown brought many challenges, and and, it, and I think it forced a lot of units to work out whether there's value in in sort of virtual consult. I was I've been really surprised by how useful I found it. You still want to get hands on, and that would always be the preference. So. You know, certainly for my London work, um, we've had good experience of virtual. And because of the nature of our London patients, you know, invariably a, a good percentage of them are not based in the UK. So they will come into London to work or they will, you know, be um, residing in London for periods of time. So our, what we've learned is we can actually do our virtual stuff. Mm-hmm. when they go back to their respective countries and we can still have that support network for them. Um, so, yeah, I, I found it really useful. It's um, There's a little bit of preparatory work you need, so I would say to the, the injured runners that I was dealing with over that time frame, because obviously we're back now with face-to-face, I would send them a, a crib sheet of what to send. You know, So if they've got some running footage for me, uh, that would be great, ideally treadmill, um, but not essential. Uh, you know, Send me your footwear range in terms of what you're wearing, 
give me a rundown on the injury. So a lot of the, the, the history taking and a lot of the clinical stuff you would be doing when you were face-to-face can already be done. You've got that information already. Mm-hmm. And in many respects, it's probably a preferable way to do things, apart from, again, my preference being I'd, I'd want to see them to get hands-on. Um, I think I've learned from the lockdown period that getting a lot of pre-appointment information is actually really useful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Um, is there anything else that you want runners or cyclists to know about how their feet work that we, we didn't get into? I feel like we covered so many things. I'm so excited about this. That's it, man. Please. Yeah, no, I mean, the bottom line is, you know, we everybody is case study one. And I say that to all of my patient group and any clinicians that I work with. Um, you know, to, in terms of injury risk management, you know, running is an injury risk. And I would look at how robust you are. You know, is your body able to deal with repetitive stress, multiple impacts? If you are injured, do not just rest. Make sure you're dealing with your strength deficits that are going to occur. Um, And then graduate yourself back into, you know, a a program. Don't go back into your pre-injury running levels. It's never going to work. If you've got, you know, one-off injuries, you know, it is what it is. But multiple injuries, uh, yeah, go and see somebody who, has an interest in, in running injury. Mm-hmm. The bike, the bike stuff is different. The bike is, um, yeah, it's more of an attritional environment. Um, I'm looking, I you know, with a group of people that I cycle with and um, cyclists that come and see me, you know, we are looking at what we can do on the bike because a lot of the the, the mechanical forces that we know are there on weight bearing on the land just don't exist on the bike. But there are different types of forces that act on the bike. So again, it's it changes your mindset slightly. But, you know, the reality is if, if you are struggling, then, you know, reach out because there's got to be some decent people around, either at your running club or whoever you cycle with. Somebody's probably seen somebody at some point that has added value to their management. Um, so, yeah, don't don't put up with things. Oh, yes, absolutely. Awesome. Um, and then, yeah, can you just let everybody know where to find you on the interwebs if they want to read some of your excellent blog posts and all of that? Yeah, so um, I mean, my, my website is slightly wordy, so it's podiatricrx.co.uk. That's P-O-D-I-A-T-R-I-C-R-X.co.uk. Or putting Mark Gallagher Podiatrist. I don't think there's anybody else with that name and title. Um, <laughs> so it should be an easy find. And, and you know, if anybody's got questions, it's, it is a small world with technology. So, you know, I can try and help guide. Obviously, we can't give specifics, but overviews and, you know, if they're looking for recommendations... If they are based in the UK, Europe, wherever, I'm more than happy to try and do that. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our past episodes, please do us a huge favor. Leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps us bring on, you know, great new guests. And yeah, we'd also love to hear from you. You can find us on the interwebs um, at consummateathlete.com, at consummateathlete on Instagram, Uh, And I am at Molly J. Herford on Instagram and Twitter. And Peter is at Peter Glassford. Thank you so much for tuning in. And we will see you next week. Dear cycling friends, we accept the fact that we have created the premier gravel and road racing podcast. And we don't think you're crazy to ask us who we think we are. You see us as you want to see us, in the simplest terms, in the most convenient definitions. But what we found out is that each one of us is a hobby blogger, a gravel pro, and a curious newbie. And you can find us on the Wide Angle Podium Network. Does that answer your question? Sincerely yours, The Grodio Podcast.